Please bow with me in prayer. Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we are continuing on our sermon series through Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. And for those of you that may not have been here the last week or few weeks, let me just go through quickly what we've covered in the first uh, few sermons. Chapters 1 and 2 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul will say several times, let me remind you. He's basically saying, this is the gospel that I preach to you, and this is what I taught you about that gospel, and this is how you applied it to your life. And then he would go on in chapters 3 and 4 where he would give them some information about what was going on and further instruction. And so Paul's continuing to try to get them to strive to not be you know, content with where they've arrived. So many Christians think, I'm fine the way I am. You know, more or less, I've arrived. And you don't arrive until you die and you're with him in heaven. In the meantime, you continue to strive to grow and learn and mature and take on more ministry possibilities. And the Lord will use you. The Lord will change you and shape you and use you that you bear much fruit, as the scriptures say. But when we come to the end of chapter, chapter 4, Paul gets into this little section where he is exhorting the Thessalonians. And let me tell you what the word exhort is in case you don't know. The word exhort has to do with both encouragement and challenge. And that's where both of these sides, these ideas, come in. He's encouraging them to continue on, but he's challenging them, saying, don't be content with where you've gotten to. Keep striving. And oh, by the way, don't let the questions around you shake your faith. Because there was a question, well, what about the second coming? When's Jesus going to come back? What about the delay? And what about those who have died? All these questions that are floating around. And part of the reason is, is exactly what you heard in the gospel reading. That Jesus would, on occasion, talk about the end times, the second coming. He would say there's going to be signs of that. But then you'd never know exactly when it was going to be. Because he said, these things are going to happen. And this will happen during this generation. But knowing exactly when, you're not going to know. And here's, a, here's an example of that right at the end of John's Gospel, because at the end of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he says things such as we have in the Gospel reading for today. But at the end of John's Gospel, there's an interesting dialogue that takes place with Jesus and Peter that kind of gives you this indication that the early church doesn't know when Jesus is going to return, even though they wanted to know. And let me uh, read to you from John chapter 21. This is a scene where... Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Three times. And then he says, very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and to go wherever you wish. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. In parenthesis, he said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. So he's telling Peter, 
what's going to happen to you is you're going to be crucified, which is what happens to Peter down the road. Peter dies before Jesus comes back. Then Peter, of course, wants to point to John and say, well, what about him? You know, we do that a lot. You know, with the Lord. Say, okay, he got an indication, well, what about me? Or what about him? We're always asking about what about someone else. And the Lord has each of us as his children when we believe in him. And he's got a plan for us. That as we seek him and to seek his Holy Spirit, he's going to unfold for us. But when we look around at other people, it sometimes throws us off because we have ideas that either I should be like them or they should be like me. It should all be the same. And it doesn't work that way. So the dialogue goes on. Peter turned and saw his disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John. He was the one who had reclined next to Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to him, Lord, what about him? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. And that's the key. What is it? If I say he's going to remain until I come again, what's that to you? Your responsibility is follow me. And so this word got out that on the one hand, Peter is told that he's going to die. On the other hand, John may be around when Jesus comes back. And so you've got years, approximately 30 years of of a gap. And everybody's speculating, oh, is he going to come back now? Is he going to come back now during that time? And what about those who have died? Well, if they were realistic, they would have realized not just Peter is going to die. He hadn't died yet at this point. But who had already died? Stephen, the first martyr. James, the brother of John, the first apostle. So some of the saints have already died. Well, what about them? What's going to happen to them? So these questions are starting to loom. People are getting anxious. And they want to make sure they didn't miss something. But you know, down through the centuries, people have speculated about when Jesus is going to come again. Right? During our day and age, and our our lives, some of us, depending upon how long you've lived, different speculations in your lifetime. And think about just down through history. The fall of the Roman Empire, there was speculation that this was the end of the world. The year 1000, the first millennium. The year 2000, the second millennium. I don't know if you know where the Seventh-day Adventists came from. There were people who were saying, the end of the world is going to come, and the guy who eventually would end up founding that denomination said it's going to happen between March 21st, 1843, and March 21st, 1844. Well, it didn't happen. They still became a, uh, a denomination, but it didn't happen. Then he said, you know what? I might have messed up my calculations. It might be October 22nd, 1844. Well, that didn't happen either. Those speculations continue to happen. I love this. I pull this out periodically just because I just am so enamored with this, this title. 88 reasons why the rapture will be in 1988. <laughs> if you're still here, you're in trouble. No, I'm kidding. I mean, the reality is that that kind of speculation has happened. I remember when this was out, I said, I've got to get my hands on this and see what this guy's going to talk about. It's just fascinating to see how people want to speculate. You know, I remember as a kid hearing about people during the Second World War, how it was going to be, you know, the Axis powers, and then after them it was going to be China and Russia. Now we're talking about the Muslims and ISIS. 
speculation after speculation that we want to figure it out or we know and everything's come together when Jesus himself said there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and, and this generation is going to see all this. So when's it going to happen? Only the Father knows. Only the Father knows. Therefore, your responsibility is to follow me. Don't be diverted. Don't allow yourselves to be sucked in, drawn in by whatever's going on around you. Whatever questions may arise, you keep your eye fixed on me. Not on all these other things. So when's he coming back? If you came today to find out, I'm sorry to say, you're not going to find out today. If you knew this scripture was coming up, I'm not going to tell you when he's coming back. We don't know. The Father knows. And Jesus will return. That we can be assured of. See, but we've got a whole other issue that challenges people in the church today and our culture. And that has to do with whether there's anyone there and if anything's going to happen in the future. Is there really an afterlife? You know, atheism and agnosticism has grown exponentially over the last 20 years. They guesstimate now that there's at least... 15% of our culture, our country, not even talking about the post-Christian, or some people are even calling it pre-Christian, in Western Europe. Because of how people have drifted away from faith. And so doubts have crept in, and questions have crept in. And what is life about, and is there even an afterlife? And The Economist, which I quoted from recently, the September 27th issue of The Economist, there's an article entitled, What's the Point?, What's the point? And they quoted six different famous people who write. Novelists, authors, poets, reporters, philosophers. Let me read to you some of the quotes from this. And this is what is infiltrating the culture and universities, by the way. Sometimes subtly, sometimes overtly. But listen to what these people say. Philip Pullman, novelist. Here we are alive and conscious in a universe that seems to be made of material things like atoms and quarks and Higgs bosons and so on. A little further down, surely stone, air, and water aren't conscious. I'm not so sure. Really? He's not sure whether a stone is conscious? It's not hard to imagine that consciousness might be a normal property of matter. Hey, we're made out of matter. Stones are made out of matter. We both both must have consciousness. Now, let me just say as an aside, there are some people that could be mistaken as stones. So I understand that. But on the other hand, this is what's out there. Let me go on to another famous author. Mary Midgley, philosopher. Richard Dawkins, we're going to start with Richard Dawkins. He knows so much more than the Bible. Has told us that the cosmos is pointless. Our universe has, he explains, precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good. Do you understand what he's saying? She's saying. No evil, no good. You need to understand that that's part of what's out there. 
See, we all can live our own moral life as we determine. Everybody's right in their own eyes. That's the subtlety behind this. This suggests that human life, which is, after all, part of the universe, must be pointless too. Dawkins, however, plainly doesn't think so, or he wouldn't find it worthwhile to work on vigorously at spreading his philosophical views. His good news, I guess. Right? John Burnside, poet. What does it all mean? To arriving at the inevitable answer, inevitable answer, nothing. Meaning is constructed by each person after his own, his or her own fashion. Do you understand? You need to understand the ramifications and implications of this. This is what is in, infecting, impacting the culture. There is no universal formula, no divine plan, no all that can make individual lives meaningful. Don't you feel encouraged? Elizabeth Colbert, reporter. The point, Darwin taught us, is to pass on our genes. That is as true for humans as for any other organism, chimpanzees, for example, or planaria. Perhaps the wisest thing we could try to do is make peace with pointlessness. Okay, uh, uh, the question is that she made a point or not. <laughs> okay, Stephen Groves, psychoanalyst. Typically, the people who come to see me are in pain. Their complaints are specific. They don't ask what's the point. They don't want to know the meaning of life. They want the suffering to stop so they can live their lives. We will probably never know what's the point. We'll never know what's the point. This is such a sad commentary on our culture, on authors and famous people in our culture, people who teach at our universities. The last person, it's one line, Anne Rowe, biographer and obituarist. The point is love. The point is love. I'd love to flesh this out with this person. To see what they mean by that. You know, because John Lennon said, all you need is love. But he also said, imagine there's no heaven. So what's love? See, the reality is we're not just dealing with when the second coming is going to happen. And what it's going to look like. We're facing the question, an assault from a different front, the culture. Is there anything at all? Any point, any life after this life? And does that point to anything for our lives? And we as Christians can say yes. Because we have the blessing and the gift of Jesus Christ. That he died on the cross in our place for our sin and then rose again to show that there is eternal everlasting life. That Jesus has the power, God has the power over sin and death in our lives. And that there is meaning and there is purpose and there is eternal life. And when we're facing the assaults or the questions, that's what we hold on to. 
In the face of what faces us today, not only these kind of authors and beliefs that permeate the culture and the writings and the universities. But we say, there is purpose and meaning and there is eternal life for those who believe. And that's why there's a certain urgency to our message. See, a lot of the questions that are being asked about Jesus, if there is an afterlife, and when, and what's it going to look like, it's really asking at one level informational questions. It's kind of like us asking why someone we love died. See, that's an intellectual question, but there's an emotional question underneath. See, because even if you get all the information, guess what? How do I respond to that, knowing that? That's the emotional part. And what Paul is driving at as he's writing to the Thessalonians is don't be sidetracked by the distractions that are out there that are asking questions you don't need the answers to. Because even if you did know when Jesus was going to come back, the question remains, how am I going to live in this life now? How am I going to live day by day now? And that's why Paul begins this section. If you want to look at your reading from 1 Thessalonians. But we do not want you to be uninformed. We want you to know what's important, what's essential. About those who have died so that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. I mean, see, they've lost focus. If Stephen was martyred and he saw the kingdom of heaven opening before him and James, the brother of John, was promised to be with the Lord and the thief was promised to be with the Lord in paradise, how can you question that those who have died may not rise again? And that's what the Thessalonians were saying. They missed it. They missed it. See, the reality is, Paul starts off by saying grieving is natural. That we grieve as those who have hope. So grieving is natural. When you lose someone you love, especially if you love them a lot, grief is natural. I am not saying that we should just forget about it. It's no big deal. You just move on. You say, hey, there's eternal life. I'm not saying that. That's why Paul says, grieve as though you have hope. Don't be as those who don't have hope. And we all grieve. And by the way, we all grieve on a regular basis whether you recognize it or not because grief is about loss. You know, as we grow older, we lose strength and we lose energy and we lose stamina and we lose hair. We lose all kinds of things and sometimes we grieve those losses in our life. I remember 10 years ago, when my doctors, after my third surgery, said, Greg, you've got to give up racquetball. You're killing your body. And I remember pouting. That was my kind of grief. Gained 20 pounds in six months. See, that's a blessing of what I wear up front, these robes. <laughs> Took me a year and a half to lose that again. But I was going through a grieving process. We all do. Especially when we lose loved ones. On a more serious note, we grieve. Paul is not saying, and Jesus is not saying, that grief is not natural. Remember, he went to the grave of Lazarus and he wept. 
knowing he was going to raise him from the dead because loss brings sadness. See, but what happens sometimes is people slide back into, much like we heard these authors, nihilism. There's really nothing out there. Or there is no afterlife like many in the Greco-Roman world believed. Or even some of the Jews believed. This is it. That's all there is. It's over. And so that was beginning to creep back and draw people and they were beginning to have doubts and question. And Paul's saying, grieve. Grieving is appropriate. But don't lose sight of the fact that we who believe have eternal life. That we have so much more beyond this world. And that's what we look towards. And that what, that's what we work towards. And for those that we love, we want them to be there. We need to get out there and share the gospel with them. Because we want them to have hope too. We want them to be with us when we see Jesus face to face that we're also seeing them. And that's what Paul's saying. Get on that. Don't grieve as those who have no hope. Grieve. But our hope is in Jesus Christ. There is eternal life. Paul goes on to write, however, 1 Thessalonians 4. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of the, God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So the question now is coming, well, how's this work? What's it look like? And Paul gives them a few particulars, but not great detail, not timing. And one of the first things we see is this word call. Now, it's really important to understand the background of the word call in the Old Testament, first and foremost. In Leviticus and Numbers, you see this word call used in a couple of different ways. In Leviticus, the first trumpet call we read about in Leviticus 25 has to do with the year of Jubilee. That everybody is declared free. Those who had debt. So on the one hand, this call that we see here responds to that, that when we're called, we're free from this life and the pain and the sin and the death of this life. So that's one note. And then we move to numbers. And we see the call is for an assembly of people to come out. So it's assembling the church. And oh, by the way, the name church, ecclesia, means called out ones. So that's part of it. You'll see in another section of the Old Testament that the call is for people to come out to war in Judges. The trumpet being blessed. And we are in a spiritual battle. Make no mistake, this world is a battleground. So there's that call. By the time you get to Revelation, at the end of the Bible, you see call in Revelation 1 and Revelation 4. It's referred to as the sound of an archangel's voice that sounds like a trumpet. And it means we're ushering in the end. What we're seeing is this whole notion and idea of call has many different dimensions and aspects all related. But what is also subtly being told is you're going to recognize it. When that time comes and you hear that call, that trumpet call, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to know what that's about. You don't have to guess. 
It's like knowing the shepherd's voice if you're one of his sheep. You don't have to worry about that. You're going to recognize the call and you're going to know what it's about. People talk about being called home. Our spiritual home. But this trumpet call for the believer is something we're going to say, I know what that's about and I know what the promise is. And then we're going to be caught up in the air as it says. Again, I don't know exactly what that means that we're all meeting there together. You know, the dead that died in the Lord and those of us that are alive, we're all going to meet there together. and We're all going to be before the throne and we're going to recognize him and we're going to recognize each other and we're going to be with him. That's the blessing of this promise. You know, and those who have gone before, by the way, how does that work? Do, do they wake up right away and see the Lord's presence? Do they sleep for a while? You know, there's so many different speculations on that too. Jesus said to the thief, You'll be with me in paradise. And yet scripture refers to those who have fallen asleep. Even Jesus, John chapter 11, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, he refers to Lazarus having fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15, the chapter on the resurrection, refers to death being falling asleep. If you look at the footnote, that's the actual Greek. The word cemetery from the Greek word means fallen asleep. Did you know that? Isn't that a fun little fact? So there's this notion that we're going to awake. And the first thing we're going to be aware of is the Lord's face and the Lord's presence and basking in his love and glory. That's what we're going to be aware of. You know, the reality is when you're asleep, you are not aware of the passage of time, right? You shut your eyes and then you open them again. Sometimes you think you've just taken a five or ten minute cat nap. It's an hour, an hour and a half later. You ever do that? I'm doing that more and more. It's an amazing thing. And you're not aware of the passage of time. First thing you're aware of is the alarm clock or you're awake or it's daylight out. You know, John Chrysostom, by the way, John Chrysostom, who wrote the prayer on page 102 of your Book of Common Prayer, the prayer of St. Chrysostom, he said a great quote, if you're afraid of death, you should be afraid of sleep. How about that one? Some of you may not sleep well tonight. But God wants us to have that kind of rest and peace. That we know when we shut our eyes. Even if we shut our eyes tonight and it's the last time in this life. That when we open them again, we're going to be with the Lord. That's what Paul's trying to say. Don't be sidetracked. Don't be anxious. And that's why belief is the absolute critical thing here that Paul's saying. And finally, he comes to this last line, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another. The first time we run across the word that's similar to this in the Bible is when Moses was holding up his arms, praying for the army of Israel that Joshua was leading. And his arms started to droop, and two of his friends came along and lifted up his arms. That's the first encouragement. That when we are struggling, no matter what the struggle is, when we're grieving when we have a loss in our life, 
that we need the church. Not just the professionals. Not just the clergy. Not just counselors. We need the church to comfort and support each other. That's what the church is meant to be about. The first comforter that we see Jesus referred to is the Holy Spirit. Jesus in John chapter 14 a couple of times, in chapter 16, he talks about, I must go away so that I can send the Holy Spirit, the advocate, the helper, the counselor, the comforter, whatever term you want to use to draw alongside you. See, because Jesus was spatially limited to one body, one physical body. When he died and rose again and ascended and he sent the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is as if the wind available to everyone. And so everyone has the availability of this comfort and this strength and this peace, one of the fruit of the Spirit, when we go through these losses and these struggles and these challenges. Comfort one another with these words. Bring the Holy Spirit into the picture. Pray and lift each other up in prayer. Encourage each other. That's what the church is meant to be, and that's what Paul's talking about. Be the church. Be the church that goes out into the world, a hopeless world, a questioning world, and bring the gospel. Be the church when it comes to comforting one another and encouraging one another. Be the church that walks with Jesus Christ and in his footsteps every day. Not getting sidetracked, not getting distracted. Encourage each other with these words. You know, I've watched this body care for people when they lose someone. And it's not just about me. I've been comforted when I lost my mom by so many people in this congregation. And what does that comfort look like? It looks like notes. And it looks like hugs. And it looks like phone calls. And it looks like, oh, by the way, comfort food. Right? Meatloaf. Yeah. That's what it looks like. And that's what the church is meant to be for one another. And I've watched it. And I've experienced it. But we are not people without hope. So we grieve. And we strengthen. And we comfort. And we move on. But God wants us to know. That we know by faith that we have assurance. That we are people of hope. Because he sent his son. And Jesus Christ lived the life. And then he died and rose again to show us. And then he sent the Spirit to empower us. And so the reality here is the Father knows when the second coming is going to happen. And the second coming for you could be as you're driving out of this parking lot. It could be tomorrow or next week. For most of you here, it's not going to be more than 50 years, trust me. Because you're going to be one of the other ones that's fallen asleep. 
But he wants us to rest assured in the hope of the resurrection through Jesus Christ. And in the meantime, walk the walk. And be a comfort to one another and encourage one another. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, who by his death and resurrection has defeated the power of sin and death in our lives. That assures us that there is more than this life. For those who trust in you, that we will spend eternity with you. Lord, help us to live with that assurance. Help us to bring the truth of the gospel to those who don't know you who speculate, who question, who lack assurance. Help us to be instruments of your gospel and instruments of your love and peace. And give us the ability to, Lord, to reach out to one another. That people here would be connected not only to you, but to each other in small groups, in classes that we would truly be a community of comfort and encouragement, especially when we all go through the losses of life. Lord, we look forward to your second coming. But until then, empower us to walk day by day as people who live the gospel, believe the gospel, and share the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.